everyone, welcome back to That's What We Read, a podcast for lovers of all things wordy. I'm Holly. And I'm Mark. This month, we're talking about all things spooky and kooky for Holly's favorite holiday, Halloween. I would play the Adams Family tune right here, but I really don't want to be sued, so you can all just play it in your heads. <laughs> um, so we're going to dive right into Now and Then. I have to admit, I haven't read that much this month, which I feel a little bit bad about, so you can get started. <laughs> Sure. So this month, um, I've actually been reading a lot of different books. It's kind of been crazy things going around. Um, But the one that I really wanted to highlight is Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance by Drew Hart. And before I get eye rolls from all our friends out there who may not be Christians, I want to point out that this book is not necessarily geared strictly towards Christians. While it does speak towards many in that community uh, who may have found more of comfort than of Jesus in Christianity, there's, um, there's wisdom in that book that anyone can draw. And it, it's, it's really been helping me to focus on ways that we can break down systems and structures in our lives that are not are not the way the world should be is that a relatively recent publication it is relatively recent it came out i want to say around a month or so ago maybe two months now that we're getting to the end of october does it include anything from like black lives matter from this year or me too or anything like that it he does uh, discuss a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the the race work that America needs to do. Um, he actually has a previous book uh, called "Trouble I've Seen: uh, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism," that is more um, more focused on uh, on racism and racial reconciliation as a whole. Uh, this book takes more of a justice focused approach. Um, addressing race relations definitely, but also uh, also other ways that the church is often complicit in um, not loving those we're called to love. I feel that's a conversation that everyone needs to be having because there's a lot of criticism around how the church responds to much of these like political movements, human rights movements. And I think that books like this are really helpful and they're good conversation starters, especially with people that you need to be having those conversations with, but uh, they're maybe reluctant to have those conversations, start those conversations. So it sounds like that's a that's a good one to kind of get the foot in the door to have people talking about this. It, it, it definitely is. I, I completely agree with you there. Um, it, I, I heard a story once where, where Gandhi, who uh, is quoted as saying, you know, I, something to the effect of, I very much like your Christ, um, not so much your Christians. And um, this is this is something that we're seeing so much in America right now, where those who who claim to claim to, to love and follow Christ are not always are not always reflecting Christ to those with whom we disagree. So that's that's where I am right now. I'm actually going through. Um, going through the book week by week by week right now with uh, a small group online with uh, the author and, and several other, uh, several other friends. So that's definitely, um, 
definitely something that's really having an impact in my life right now. Is he the writer who teaches at the local university to us? Yes, he is. Okay. I wondered. I feel like I recognized his name and I've seen him on posters and advertising for different things. So I wondered if it was the same person. Yes, it is. So, so that... what have you recently been reading? Recently, I've, um, I've I've finished a book called The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity in a Crisis of Our Own Making by Jared Yates Sexton. Um, the, the, the title is definitely a mouthful, but, um, the, the concept as a whole of how so often society misrepresents masculinity and sets men up with, um, with emotional and, and social archetypes that, um, not only are unattainable, but are psychologically damaging. And how so often, uh, in the author's case, you know that that led to to him um, being abused growing up, and and seeing um, not necessarily in his life, but just seeing abuse uh, repeated and repeated as abusers abuse, and toxic masculinity continues to to damage people in in ways that we that men don't often realize. And it, it, it was helpful for me um, growing up as a, uh, especially as a younger child, I was, I was frequently uh, bullied for not really, not being the, not being the icon of, of masculinity that my peers had expected. And it was, um, it was definitely validating for me to read this, read this book and, and realize that, you know, I'm, at least in, in this particular area of life, I'm not the broken one. It's really interesting that you just recently read this and I had no idea that you'd read this. And I just bought that. I'm about to start reading a book called entitled how male privilege hurts women by Kate Mann. And I have a feeling there's going to be some overlap in this, but that just came out at the end of August and it has really, really good reviews from New York Times, Guardian, all kinds of places. So I definitely feel like that's a bit of a theme for this year. And again, like your other books, something important that needs to be talked about. And it's it's definitely an interesting topic. And I wish more people were talking about something like this and didn't just kind of leak to people's defense and say like, oh, toxic masculinity is not a thing. Like it doesn't exist. And they really need to just read more. <laughs> I, I feel like so much, so many problems in the world could be solved by people just reading more. I, you know what? I, I think you're you're a hundred percent on with that, and I, I think a lot of it too. Um, the way that this toxic masculinity uh, builds and and forms people who are brought up in it, it they're they almost see any. Uh, any attempt to call out to toxic masculinity as a statement that they are toxic since they express this manifestation right. of masculinity. So that it it's very easy for them to see attempts to call out toxic masculinity since they so internalize it as an attempt to call them out. And that I think is one of the reasons why it often yields this very defensive reaction from, from certain quarters. Agreed. Okay. So like I said before, I haven't done much reading this month. It has been a crazy month with work and uni and all kinds of things. 
So when I have those months and I desperately need to read something, but I don't want to put my whole brain into it, actually kind of put as little of my brain into it as possible, I go back to a book I probably have read about six times now. And feel free, everyone, to judge me for this because it's terrible. But the first Outlander book by Diana Gabaldon is my go-to when I need something that I've read before. I just want to read something, but I know exactly what's going to happen. I've seen the TV show a million times. I have to say, I think that the first book and the first season of the show are the best and it gets progressively worse from there. It's not terrible. I've kept watching it, but and I've read all of the books now, but I, I definitely think that the plot and the character development, everything is the best in the first book. So... That is what I just recently finished last week. I have read it so many times at this point that I I don't even have to think while I'm reading it anymore. And I, I know it, it's definitely a popular series, but for some of those like myself who may have been largely living under a rock or at least uh, a rock-like pile of other books for the past couple years, um, could you give a, a brief explanation of, of at least a story of the first book and why it resonates so much with you? Yes, so Outlander is a series of, I'm looking at my shelf right now, I think there's eight books, something like that. But the first one, basically the whole premise of the book is Claire is the main character and it starts in immediately post Second World War and she's with her husband, they're on their honeymoon in Scotland and she comes across this um, stone circle, which if you don't know anything about stone circles, I'm not going to get into it because I will probably mess it up completely. Just go and Google it. They're very interesting um, historically and culturally. Um, so she comes across these stone circles, goes inside the circle, touches the stone in the middle and time travels back to Scotland in the 1600s. Um, and then she meets Jamie, who is the other main character. And he is leading a group of guys to like against the English, basically. Um and there's all the different clans that get involved and it's just really interesting and it's all about how Claire's trying to deal with being a you know woman from the 1940s who suddenly had to go back to the 1600s and obviously she can't tell anyone that she's a time traveler because they will not believe her Burn the witch that actually happens that's not a spoiler there is an entire section where she gets accused of being a witch so um that yeah it's very interesting and there's a whole bunch of books that follow that one where they end up in france and america and the tv show is also really good um so yeah it's it's good it's just nice to kind of escape for a bit especially this year because we were meant to be in scotland um so it kind of just gives me nostalgic memories of the times i've been in scotland with my friends and thinking about traveling which maybe we'll get to do again one day um so yeah, I've read, I've definitely read it at least five times now. I read them years ago before the TV show was made. And then I started watching the TV show, which I feel like there's a very like niche section of the population that have seen the show. And it's just not as popular as you'd think it would be. There are so many people I know that are like, what's Outlander? So I always forget that other people don't know about Outlander. Um, but yeah, the I think they're on the fifth, season now something like that um and so usually what i do is i will when i know that the next season's coming out i'll go back and i'll read that book and then i'll watch the new season but i know the 
they they hadn't started filming the next season by the time everyone went into lockdown so I don't know I have usually it's about two years between the different seasons I have absolutely no idea how long it'll be until the next one now so I just was thinking well I just need something that I've read before that will do <laughs> so that is my my recent read um, my current read is slightly different for me. It's a non-fiction book and is called Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequality and Creating the Technologies of Tomorrow. And it's by Ramesh Srinivasan. I hope I said that right. Um, he is a professor of information studies and design media arts at UCLA. And I'm actually reading this for one of the classes that I'm taking right now. That's It's more a sociology class than a digital marketing class about how kind of like bias social media is and how different things can impact social media so um this book is one of our required readings but we only have to read a couple of chapters from it but i'm just reading the whole thing because i'm the nerd um and essentially what this talks about um so from the blurb on the back it talks about how you know we all love using google the convenience of buying from amazon the elegance and power of our apple devices but it's a one-way top-down process we're not asked for our input only our data and so it talks a lot about how, you know, all these companies in Silicon Valley are collecting all of this data about us as consumers, but we don't have any input into how the algorithms are built. And as a result, algorithms are incredibly biased. In a lot of cases, they're very white Western centric. Um, and so that dictates, you know, what we're seeing. So if you think about how you use Google Google starts suggesting things to you based on what it thinks you like. But to do that, it has to make a number of assumptions about what you're searching for. So it gets a lot more complicated than that. But it's definitely really interesting to think about because, I mean, we all use all of these tech devices and different platforms all the time. But do any of us really stop and think about, you know, what information are they collecting about us? How are they using that data? And that was something we actually looked at a couple of weeks ago um, in the class was we had to watch a video. I think it was from Vice. I'll link it in the show notes um, if I can go back and find it. It was a video series where this journalist every week cut one of the big five tech companies out of her life and tried to function without them. And it's terrifying how much, especially Google and Amazon, control the internet as a whole. Because even if you're not using Amazon per se, Amazon controls so many cloud software features and they host a ton of data for other companies. I think one of them she tried to use was Uber or Lyft and she couldn't use it because the the way that she had to kind of cut everything out, they'd set up some system where any traffic from those companies was being blocked to her devices. So when she tried to go and use Uber and Lyft, it was being hosted on an Amazon server so she couldn't use it because it was blocking all the traffic. So it's it's crazy when you really start looking into the detail of how much these, you know, five companies. So for those who aren't aware, the big five tech companies are Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft and Apple. So just thinking about how much those five companies alone control of the web, the world, everything. It's quite scary. Um, there are things you can do about it to some degree but a lot of it is going to come down to things like government regulation um that's something that's kind of ongoing since the i'm sure everyone remembers the cambridge analytica scandal a few years ago with facebook and that's been going through i think it's congress the last several years there was one hearing i think it was just last week where um a bunch of representatives from all the big five tech companies were speaking to congress members and kind of 
discussing internet and data privacy and it's it's a whole thing so yeah so it's it's one of those books that's really interesting but it's also really scary so I try not to think about it too much because I'm just I'm at the point where I'm just happy to let them have my data because I use all these things every single day I will say though the one good thing is that this journalist found if you use if you're not using Apple devices, Apple don't really have any of your data. So that's they're they're probably the best one out of the big five to avoid, you know, giving all your data if you really want to try and cut that kind of thing out. They only take your data if you're using Apple devices. So that's quite easy to get around if you want to, but Amazon and Google were kind of the devils in that situation. There was no way that you could function in the modern world. You would have to be a literal hermit on a mountain, no communication with anyone outside of like pigeon mail, because without, you just couldn't do it. It's impossible. Where, where do I sign up for literal hermit and pigeon mail? I know that sounds quite nice, actually. I don't know. There are things that I just couldn't function without the internet. Like, you know how terrible my cooking is. I need recipes and I have so many recipe books, but they d- it's really hard to find recipes sometimes. I don't remember what book they're in. They get that. We have so many recipe books. <sighs> and just think how, like, you could. I couldn't use Netflix. I couldn't use Amazon Prime. Just think of all of the great films and TV shows that we would miss yeah. if we didn't use those things. Definitely. All kidding aside, I've heard re- someone recently say that um when you see services like uh google facebook twitter as an example uh given away for free as opposed to uh services like netflix or hulu you know what what is the product when there's a free service and the answer is us and our like our data we we are the product that facebook and google are selling not to say well is it the so it was is it the social network that the social dilemma that i was watching the social dilemma yeah social network is a film um so the social dilemma on netflix if you are interested in this topic very very good documentary that dives into a whole bunch of these issues and it primarily focuses on facebook um and other social media um but it's really interesting looking at you know it, it specifically focuses around how Facebook uses your information to target you for things like political ads and what you see on your newsfeed and things like that. Um, so it's quite a niche topic, but it's very interesting. So if you're if you're interested in this kind of thing and want to learn more, that's a good place to start. There's obviously things that they leave out and like all documentaries, it only has really one view and there's a lot of things they don't include, but it's it's a good starting point if this is a topic you're interested in. I, I definitely agree. It's a great place to start, especially for so many of us. Uh, social media has grown to be an irreplaceable part of, of our modern life, especially in a year uh, where social face-to-face social interaction is limited. We've come to depend on social media. And I think we all know we've all experienced the positives of that. When you get to connect with a family member who's living on the other side of the country that you haven't seen in three years, social media is fabulous. When you get to communicate with, uh, with loved ones living in another country that you haven't gotten to see social media is fabulous. I mean, and even just meeting random strangers on the internet, like I spend probably, this is 
terrible but I probably spend five to six hours a day on Instagram I have met so many great people especially over the last couple of years since I've been freelancing the freelance community especially like the creative freelance community are so lovely and I'm sure there's people out there that are not so lovely but the ones that I have come across are great people and I've got some work out of different people that I've met on Instagram um I've had some client referrals from people, but I've just made some really nice friends on there and, you know, people that will just chat in DMs and yeah, it's, I love social media. There's a lot of reasons I don't love social media, but on the whole, my experience personally has been probably 80% positive. I also think it's because I'm very particular about how I use social media and I am not ashamed to admit that I heavily curate my content in terms of what I post myself but also in terms of people who I follow I have kind of very deliberately created echo echo chambers for myself on my social media because I have quite a diverse group in my real life and I feel like you know I read quite diverse news I know people that have a lot of different opinions about a lot of different things and so going on social is kind of my escape from the real world in a lot of in a lot of cases so I don't necessarily want to see all of the different views and aggressive tweets and all of those things I don't necessarily want to see all of that when I go on social because I already see a lot of that in real life so I've very heavily curated how my social media looks like I only have about 100 Facebook friends now because it's the only way I can really stay in touch with a lot of my friends back home and see like you know what they're up to so I don't really have that many friends on Facebook because I don't really use Facebook that much anymore so you know something like that I've kind of pared it down from the 500 plus friends that I used to have who let's be real were not really friends they're just people that I had some at some point in my life known but I wasn't necessarily still friends with them so I just you know I whittled it down to about 100 people that I still wanted to know what was going on in their lives and it's quite a pleasant place to be now I have to say and I I think social media as escapism can definitely be healthy um, especially when we need sort of ways to escape from things that are going on in life but I, I, I definitely want to point out the fact that this, uh, this documentary often highlights ways that we don't think about social media and the unseen impacts that it often has in our life. Um, again, not saying that everyone needs to go out and rush to delete all their social media accounts. You may want to, no. but you may not want to. The, the trade-off may be worth it to you. Uh, I think just really this seeing this documentary will help build that informed consent that's really necessary to make the decision do i still want to give facebook my viewing data my my preference data on a daily basis do you know do i still want everything on the internet knowing all this data about me you may think it's worth the risk to be able to communicate with people and have that escapism you may not but it's really about giving you that informed choice yeah absolutely Okay, so moving on to Spooky and Kooky, which is the theme for this month. So I'm going to start because I'm really excited because I have just bought, for the first time since I was probably about eight years old, a copy of The Worst Witch by Jill Murphy. Now, I don't know if this is a specifically English book. I don't know if anyone else outside of the UK has even really read this, but oh, the nostalgia when this arrived this week has been, oh, it's just amazing. I love it so much. I did forget how small the first book was. It felt a lot longer when I was eight, (laughs) but it has very large font and lots of illustrations throughout. And it's probably only about 90 pages, 
but with very large fonts. So it's, yeah, it's very short. But essentially, The Worst Witch is about a witch called Mildred Hubble and she is absolutely terrible at being a witch. So she goes to Miss Cackle's Academy for Witches, which I'm going to just say, if you've read Harry Potter, apparently JK Rowling was somewhat inspired by The Worst Witch. And I can really see that having had a quick look through this again this week. You have the really bad witch. You have the person who's kind of the Malfoy character, which I think is Ethel, um, she's kind of like the enemy and then you have miss hardbroom who's like the horrible like snape like character um who is just doesn't like any of the students except for ethel because she's the best um but yeah it's just a really cute children's book that's all about witches and this is my favorite month of the year so if i was going to talk about a children's book at any point this year (laughs) it was going to be now so yeah i think if you if you have kids around like the six to eight age range this is a really fun book to read with them and it's a whole series of books i think there's seven of them now there were originally six and then i think jill murphy brought out a final one about two years ago which i've just ordered and is supposed to arrive in the next couple of weeks so i'm very excited to revisit all of these and have some good childhood memories come back um but i have to say this and the sophie books by i think it was dick king smith were hands down my two favorite books when i was about seven eight so yeah i'm very excited to go back and reread this now now would you say again because obviously these are books i i haven't read uh didn't read growing up would you say like is there an element of uh like harry potter and uh and the sorcerer's stone growing up you know there's that real big even in the first book as, as a young, as a young character, Harry is facing ultimate evil. Is there really kind of like a tension villain atmosphere or is it sort of like a comedy of errors kind of thing as she's figuring out how to go through the book? There's things that go wrong and there's things that she has to kind of overcome. There's always like a challenge that she has to face and overcome in all of the books. But this is definitely geared towards much younger children than Harry Potter is. It's It doesn't deal with some of the more kind of grown up themes that, that Harry Potter would deal with. And also Harry Potter, even the first one, is probably three times longer than this. So this is definitely the... It's like the intro to Harry Potter before your kids are old enough to read Harry Potter. Um, So it kind of engrosses you in the world of like witchcraft and magic and school environment. But it's not, there's nothing really scary in there. Like she has a really cute cat and there's pictures all throughout the book and there's just like fun things that happen. So it's like Harry Potter light. So yeah, it's, it's nothing too serious i wouldn't hesitate to read this to small children there's nothing that's going to freak them out so and i think they've i know there was a tv show made that i watched when i was younger and i think they've just made another one with um bella ramsey who was in game of thrones because i keep seeing it when i'm scrolling on netflix i haven't seen it yet but i i'm assuming it's the same thing because it's the same name so and i would assume that would be copywritten so yeah so i might i might give that a go at some point and relive some childhood memories so that is my first one what about you what is your first book for spooky and kooky so the, the first one that i wanted to cover uh well not a whole book in itself it's a short story by edgar Allan poe who i feel like has to be in the conversation when we're talking about spooky and kooky um i love edgar Allan poe and there's when we first decided on the theme i knew that i wanted to highlight something poe but the the choices were i can't say endless because he didn't write everything but the choices were 
difficult, especially for someone like me who is not an expert in choices. The, the story that I eventually settled on was The Mask of the Red Death, uh, which is a short story. I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but um, it it's, tells the story of a prince who throws a party for a large group of his supporters at the time of a, uh, a, a plague that's going on similar to you know the Black Death of, of medieval times, except obviously from the titles you can tell in this case it's the red death and uh there's there's this uh, mask mask ball masquerade party that is held in this massive castle and the sheer imagery that poe sets and uh, the way he describes the details and the the colors of this suite where the mask ball is held are any, any anyone who's read who has read poe knows that his uh, his descriptions, although often grotesque, are uh, are powerful and, and beautifully written in their in their imagery. Uh, it's it's not a long story by any means, but it's it's definitely always been one of my favorites to read. Have you ever have you read that one? I haven't read that particular one. I've read other things by Edgar Allan Poe. I'm very surprised that we never did Poe at school because my last two years of school in my English literature class we did gothic literature and so one of the books I'm going to be talking about was from that time that I read that Um, but I'm really surprised that we never did Poe then we never really did much American literature which always surprised me so maybe that's why that they just didn't focus on that so that's why he wasn't included but since school I've read a lot of Poe and isn't there a Edgar Allan Poe museum in Philadelphia? I believe there is I've I feel like we've walked past it a couple of times. So for those who don't know, we live kind of sandwiched between Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. They're about an hour and a half to two hours away in each direction. Um, so we've we've been to both several times. And I feel like I definitely feel like we've walked past something to do with Edgar Allan Poe in Philly the last couple of times that we've been. So maybe once COVID is not really a thing anymore and we can go and do fun things outside in cities, then maybe we should go and investigate. Definitely. I'm trying to find, I know, so I, um, I subscribe to the law podcast and the, their Patreon account. So I get kind of the behind the law episodes, which are kind of describing the different kind of research things that happen in all the episodes. And I know a couple of weeks ago, they talked about Edgar Allan Poe and there's a, apparently a good biography about him and I can't find it now. I'm scrolling through their Patreon, but if I find that, I'll put that in the show notes as well, because I know they were they were definitely talking about Edgar Allan Poe a few weeks ago. So nice. um, I would really like to yeah. read a biography about him because I didn't realize he had such a tragic life. I mean, I knew he wrote very tragic stories and poetry, but I didn't realize how much of that was influenced by his real life events. So that's something I would quite like to dive into a little bit. Definitely. More. Okay, so my next book is, I, I'm calling this borderline spooky and kooky because it's spooky in the fact that it's terrifying because it's about real life murders. Um, I briefly mentioned this in our first episode um, when I was talking about Billy Jensen's book that I was reading, um, but it is I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer by Michelle McNamara. I've read this book three times now in the last two years. I cannot get enough of this book. And there is an excellent documentary, which is on HBO in the US, and I believe it's on Sky in the UK. But it is 
essentially, as the title says. It is Michelle McNamara trying to discover who this Golden State Killer was. So the Golden State Killer was an unknown assailant in the, I think it was the 80s, the 70s and 80s in California. And he would basically break into people's houses. And I think at the beginning, he would just rape women in their houses and it was awful. And then I think it was probably about five, six years later, he started killing his victims. Um, And I think he ended up killing seven or eight different people throughout the course of about 10 years. And then he just disappeared off the map. Like all of the crimes stopped, like nobody knew who he was. There were definitely things, you know, at the crime scenes that they could link it all back to one person, but they just couldn't figure out who this guy was. And so it went on for years and years, cold case, nobody knew who he was. And then Michelle McNamara was a crime writer and she became interested In this particular case, she stumbled across various true crime forums online and kind of fell into this case so heavily that it ultimately consumed her entire life and sadly killed her. I think she was on, you know, different sleeping medications and all kinds of things. And one day she just didn't wake up. And I think she was in her early 40s, something like that. Um, And it's, it's a really sad story because she never actually finished the book and about... 18 months after she died they actually caught the golden state killer and he just very recently actually i think in the last couple of months was convicted of something like i don't know how many crimes but he's i think he got like a 250 year life sentence or something insane and he's already in his like early 80s so he will definitely never come out of prison um but i'm just so sad because she did all this work and she never got to see the end so it's just it that's just in the back of your mind all the time and it's that's not a spoiler that she never finished the book it's um in the the prologue there's uh there's a lot of information about you know how she was researching it and the fact that she did die before finishing the book and and how they kind of finished everything and wrapped it up in the book and then how the case was ultimately solved um i would say if you if you like the book still watch the documentary because there's interviews with Michelle that were obviously filmed before her death and throughout the course of her writing the book. Um, so it's, it's actually quite nice because you're hearing a lot of the story directly from Michelle, um, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and for those that don't know, she was married to the actor Patton Oswalt. So he's featured in the documentary. Um, Billy Jensen, whose book I read last month is in the documentary. They were very good friends. Um, and then a couple of the different investigators. And there's also quite a few interviews with several of the early victims of the Golden State Killer, which I thought was really impressive. I think that it's obviously a very difficult and sensitive topic to deal with. Um, and so I think they did that in a, in a really good way. It wasn't, it, it didn't feel kind of disgusting or anything, how they were trying to like pull out these victim stories and, and make them kind of tell their story to the world in an uncomfortable way. I think it was done in a very sensitive way. So um, I would say if you like the book, still watch the documentary because there's a ton of information. Like Obviously the basics are going to be the same, but there's, there's just, a, it's different when you start hearing it audibly instead of just reading it in a book and they show some different things obviously there's only so much that pictures in a book can show you um they in the documentary they drive by some of the houses so you definitely get a much better sense of you know how close some of the houses were to each other and different routes he would have taken to you know get into people's houses and 
pick his next victim and all that kind of thing which you just don't really get from the book because it's obviously hard to convey that kind of thing um so the documentary is still worth a watch if even if you've read the book um like I said I've read this a few times now and it's one of those things like I feel like you pick up different things every time and I'm sure it's the same as when you're trying to solve any kind of cold case that, you know, one one day you'll focus on one thing and you'll narrow your attention into that. And then the next week you'll be looking at something else. And I think that's that's the mark of a, a really good, true crime writer is that you can reread this about the same crime over and over again and you'll just pick up different things every time. Um, and it's interesting if you want to do your own research about kind of more of the background, obviously now that they know who he is, which they didn't when this book came out, um, doing some more research about the life of of the guy that actually did it um, and how how this all ended up happening. It's it's really interesting. So yes, we definitely recommend that one. For my next spooky and kooky read, I selected um, another, another classic, a, a story that I grew up reading and have read countless times as well. The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which is probably um, probably one of the more famous Holmes novels, I would say. Um, one of the more well-known. It it, um, it features, uh, starts off with a, the story of a legendary family who lived out on the, uh, the wild moors of England and uh, eventually one of the one of the uh, scions of the family who was uh, engaged in uh, what you could call wild living was uh, drunkenly chasing, drunkenly chasing a girl out on the moor, and never returned. And when his friends caught up with him, they found uh, what was described in the story as a giant hellhound, who was um, basically had 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 killed him, and that you know that 16th 17th century legend is sort of written off until uh until sherlock holmes finds out that one of the recent members of of this family has just passed away and in the immediate vicinity of his body uh they found the footprints of a gigantic hound so sherlock holmes and his uh you know, very much science. This is how the world is super. The supernatural does not exist are sort of pitted early on against this potential supernatural legend. And it's, it's interesting to watch, watch the plot develop as the, as the characters go through and grapple with how they feel about this story. This is a very anti readery kind of question. Was this one of the episodes of the Sherlock TV show? Have they, they done did. This one? base an episode on this yes i want to say it was in the i know they're not exactly i want to say it was in the third season um they the episode they sort of flip it around a little bit i think it's called the hounds of the baskerville or hounds of baskerville and it's it is it is loosely based i will say if you've seen that episode but haven't read the novel the ending and the villain is diff is different from in the episode so you can watch one or engage in one and then the other without knowing how it's going to turn out. I haven't read any of the <sighs> Sherlock stories in probably at least ten, oh, okay. in at least 10 okay. years. I have read them, but I haven't read them in about 10 years. So it's, it's been a while. So I don't really remember what happens in all of them. And I think that's the thing because there's so many of them. I forget 
what happens in each one and I get confused and they all kind of mesh in my mind so obviously I remember this is the one with the dog but yeah I don't know much about that so I might have to go and reread those the the novels are definitely longer than the the short stories so it's you know it's more more than a you know 10-15 minute read um and it's not necessarily anything like Poe um, especially some of his other works like the the Telltale Heart that could give you a good fright. Uh, it's more of just uh, a story that keeps the page pages turning, um, but definitely one that I've enjoyed reading. Good. So my final one for this month is a classic because who would I be if not the one that promotes all of the classics? Um, so I actually really hated this book the first time I read it. Um, and it is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. I can hear the gasps from all of the literature loving fans all over now when I say that I hated this book. Um, but yes, I really didn't like this book. It was one of the ones I had to read for my A-level Gothic literature class. I just found Jane to be a really, really irritating main character. And like I thought the plot was good and generally like the setting was really cool. And I liked most of the other characters except for Jane, which was a little bit problematic when she is the narrator and you can't escape from her for the entire book. So, um, so yeah, so I didn't really like this book that much. And then when we went into lockdown at the beginning of this year, the National Theatre started doing National Theatre at Home productions on Fridays where they would have a live a recording of a performance live on youtube that day and then it would be available online for seven days afterwards and one of the ones that they had was i think it was something like a 2010 11 production of jane eyre with the bristol old vic and it was so good i will say if you can find it anywhere online go and watch it especially if you didn't like the book because this has completely changed my mind i've now reread jane eyre since i watched that production completely changed my mind on this book and now I really like it. Jane's still quite annoying, but I like it a lot more than I did before. It's a great production. The way they stage it is really interesting. It's, you know, set in the time that the book is set in, but it has like a really modern staging, which is just very interesting. Highly, highly recommend. Um, so for those who haven't read Jane Eyre, Jane kind of is a she's an orphan and lives with her aunt and her really annoying cousins and then she ends up getting shipped off to this orphanage grows up there and then when she becomes an adult she becomes the governess for this girl at a large estate run by mr rochester and she moves in there is the governess and various things happen so that's all i'm gonna say because i don't want to give any spoilers away but Mr. Rochester is a great character. I know you're not really meant to like him, but I love him a lot. And I can't remember if Tom Hardy played Mr. Rochester at any point. I know he definitely was in an adaptation of Wuthering Heights. And so I, if he wasn't, he needs to be. Because whenever I read Mr. Rochester, I think Tom Hardy, because he would be perfect. Um, but yeah, Jane Eyre is... It's one of those books that it's not really that spooky until about halfway through. Um but after that, weird things happen. So I would definitely say it fits into the the spooky and kooky category. But I had to I had to mention a classic because it it felt wrong not to. Definitely, and this is actually one that I haven't read either. So I'm there are so many classics that I haven't gotten to yet. But this is this sounds like one that I'll have to move further up my list. Yeah, maybe by next Halloween you might have read it, and we can revisit and you definitely. can give your opinion. And I, I I will say before I move on that. Um, we've gotten the chance through lockdown to watch several of the national theater live productions and they've all been absolutely fabulous. 
Um, so I can I want to encourage anyone who gets the chance, um, especially if you enjoy theater, whether it's uh, whether it's Shakespeare or plays like this that are based on classics or something that might be might be more modern. I would encourage you to um, to find something that you can like in that because there's definitely something out there that anyone can get into. And if you're financially able to, would highly encourage people donating to places like the National Theatre and other arts kind of funds that really, really need help right now. Most of the theatres are probably not going to be opening again until at least the spring of 2021. And that's a very big if right now. I have a number of friends who work in theatres and actors and work backstage and it's they've really suffered this year. So you know, they're mostly everyone that works in the arts are freelancers, unless you're on a contract with a theatre that goes on for years at a time. Most of those people have not been paid for the whole of this year and are really relying on some of these grants and, and funding schemes that are now being underfunded because funds are having to be kind of diverted to other places. So if you can financially afford to, would highly encourage donating to, to some of these Definitely. arts funds. One other thing you may want to keep an eye out for if you follow some of these, uh, specifically the National Theatre on uh, on social media, they'll frequently, or I should say frequently in the days before COVID, had showings of National Theatre films in syndicated cinemas across, at least across the states here. I believe they did it in the UK as well. I think it's worldwide. you could just go to your local cinema and watch uh, watch Benedict Cumberbatch and Hamlet or watch Ian McKellen and King Lear or just classic performances like that of works that you otherwise would not get the chance to see. Uh, so I would encourage anyone who's into such things to keep your eye out for, uh, for performances like that as things hopefully start to nudge their way towards normal. Yeah, the National Theatre specifically, I think they stopped doing the lives, I think a couple of months ago. They only really did them kind of at the beginning of lockdown, but now that the UK is kind of heading back into proper lockdown they might start doing them again so follow their youtube channel and then they'll post the trailer for any shows that are coming out that week and then like i said they'll show them live at a specific time it was either thursdays or fridays in the evening and then those will be available for seven days to watch afterwards so if you can't make it live you can still watch them for the week afterwards the two that we've seen that we loved were a midsummer night's dream that was i think that was last year last summer that was on in London. And then we also went to see um, Frankenstein that Benedict Cumberbatch was in. And it was really interesting. I don't remember the name of the other actor that was in that, but that was a really interesting production because they switched the roles kind of, it was like every night they would switch. So one night Benedict Cumberbatch was Frankenstein and then the the next night he was the monster and they would just keep alternating back and forth like between the two of them. So did did we see both? I think we did because we watched the Benedict Cumberbatch at the cinema when he was Frankenstein and then he was the monster when we watched it on the National Theatre Live at home. Yeah, that, that's that's correct. It, it, it blew both of our minds. I mean, it blows both of our minds when actors can memorize entire plays. Three hours worth of content. <laughs> but yet one, I mean, two actors in this case, because they swapped roles, memorized two entire roles. And did them every yeah. other day. So it's not like you have one role that you memorize here and then th three months later you need to have something else. No, yeah. every night you are performing a different role. It's insane. It just goes to show you how incredible these actors are because they, there's, I would say there are almost no scenes in that play where like one of them is not in. So they literally had to learn the entire play twice. 
So it, yeah, incredible. And I highly, highly recommend if you can find that still. And I can't remember the things that I want to say on a daily basis. So here we are. No, right? I just, I don't even know how we're getting through this podcast <laughs> most of the time. Sheer luck. It is sheer luck. Okay, what's your last book for so, Spooky and Kiki? Holly did two modern books and one classic. I'm doing two classics and one modern book. This is a relatively recent book that came out in 2018. Uh, it's called The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton, who also has a new book that came out earlier this month, which I haven't yet read, but I'm excited to get to. This particular book is almost a mix of, uh, of Groundhog Day with a, a murder whodunit. It features a, a character who has to wake up each day and solve a murder, but each day he wakes up in the body of a different guest at Blackheath House, where a, a, a party is being held. So it's really, um, really interesting as the characters develop and you start to see the the role and the tension in some cases between uh, the the psychology of the main character, whose name is Aiden Bishop, and the brains and bodies that he's living through on the various days as he attempts to solve this murder. And uh, as the tension builds and the story goes on, um, there's there's change after change. And it's it was definitely a book that I really enjoyed reading. I actually read it twice um, and would, would definitely recommend it to anyone who's interested in... Um, especially in, in whodunits or, or mysteries of any sort. It was a book that I really enjoyed reading. I think this is the first fiction book that you've ever recommended to me because I know you're not a huge fiction lover in general, but and like, I, I know you really liked The Night Circus, but obviously I read that before you did. So yeah, I think this is the first fiction that you've ever been like, as soon as you finish, you have to read this, you have to read this. So I will get to that eventually. So I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Definitely. Moving on here, our next topic to discuss is our non-bookish reads, which I know we both read a lot of books, but this is anything. It could be a, a magazine article or something similar to that that we've encountered that we want to share. So what is your non-bookish read? So I know the one that I had in our first episode was quite a serious one, so I went for a lighthearted one this time. It is The Secret World of Diary Hunters by Amelia Tate in The Guardian, which this only came out, um, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And essentially, it is an investigative piece that she did about people who buy old diaries and journals on eBay. And as a former history student, I was engrossed from the title. So that was, you know, I was obviously going to read all of this, but it starts with um, looking at this 118 year old diary by a woman called Olga. Um, the, the diary was started in 1902 and talks about the experiences of a young, young immigrant who was raised in a strict religious environment when she moved to the US. And um, Amelia interviews this woman called Sally McNamara. That seems to be a theme of names this month. Um, and talks about, you know, how she ended up coming across this. And essentially, she bought the diary online in 2005. And over the last 35 years, this woman has bought more than 8,000 diaries wow. from complete strangers she's just bought them on ebay and so well, she i think she's bought a lot on ebay but she's also bought them at things like yard sales and um like auctions when people's relatives die and they're getting rid of all their stuff um 
but yeah, there's like a whole bunch of stuff. And it said that she, a friend first introduced her to eBay in 1998 and she just entered the, like in the search diaries and loads and loads of different ones came up and she just started buying them. And so then it started, the um, the article goes on to talk about other people. Um, so there's this one woman, Joanna Bournes, who is a writer from New York and has 10,000 YouTube subscribers. And she started the YouTube channel to kind of, catch up with this trend of reading strangers diaries a few years ago and so she bought five diaries that cost between 20 pounds and 40 pounds each and she just reads them on her youtube channel and i haven't looked her up yet but i'm definitely going to because i'm just this is a whole world that i didn't know existed and this is going to be very dangerous for me because i love this kind of thing um i love old diaries obviously i love history we talked about that in our first episode um so i think this this could be my new hobby is buying people's diaries online and just reading them. Although as someone who also keeps a diary, this is a really terrifying thought because obviously when you write your diary, you don't expect anyone to ever read it. So I'm, I'm like now rethinking everything I've ever written down. I'm like, should I, should I burn these? Like, do I, do I leave a letter in my will? That's like upon my death, please destroy all of these. These should never be put into the public. Um, but yeah, so my grandma actually kept diaries when she was in boarding school, when she was very, very young. I think she was something like 12 or 13 when she was at boarding school in Belgium. And she kept diaries the whole time. And I remember growing up, she used to sit and read them with me. And I just remembered them being at her house all the time. And I said to her, I was like, Grandma, when you're sadly not here anymore, I only want one thing from you. Please leave those diaries to me. And then as a massive surprise last Christmas, I open up one of my presents and there are my grandma's two diaries and thankfully my grandma is still here and with us and healthy and I love her very much but I was delighted to have to have those they're probably my most prized possessions they're actually kept in a fireproof box in our house because I'm so terrified that something's going to happen to them and I think one of my projects when I'm finished with my master's degree is I'm going to type them up or scan them in or do something so that I've got a record of them somewhere in case something happens to the originals um but yeah so I I love diaries I love all these kinds of things so when I came across this article I was hooked so I'm definitely going to go and uh check out some of these youtube channels and websites of people that have been buying these diaries because I, I i was shocked at how cheap some of them are um some of them are very expensive there's one woman that they interview um that talks about how she sold different diaries to museums and universities and her most valuable one was written by a preacher who met um sitting bull in the 1860s and she sold that for eight thousand pounds wow. to a museum so I'm sure there's probably different diaries out there that are worth a lot more than that. But of the ones that she talked about in this article, that was her her most expensive one. Um, but there's some really interesting ones like that are definitely not, you know, anything to do with famous and well-known people in history. There's just ones from ordinary people living their normal lives. And um, it's really interesting that the article talks about different things that are kind of accidental bits of social history is how um, the writer terms it, that... She was, you know, reading one of the ones that that someone had given her and a cinema ticket cost £1.75 in 1981. And now they're significantly more expensive than that. So, you know, there's things like that that's really interesting, like looking at people's lives. And like the 80s are not that long ago. And it's crazy to think like what, you know, what how, how much things were and what people were doing then and how similar things are to now and how different things are. So I think I might have found 
a new hobby this this is going to be very dangerous it's, it's very interesting to think about as well you know we commonly think that you know unless you're massively famous when you die you're forgotten by probably all except your immediate family and it's interesting to look at at things like this like diaries of, of uh you know workaday events or intimate moments and think that this is how we could be remembered not in our not in our massive undertakings but in our in our normal lives and it, there's a bit of well i think it's just a bit of the reassurance it's very it's very interesting to think about this kind of and reflecting on our previous conversation about social media, because I think a lot of people use social media for this reason. Obviously, you know, if you have a public social media account to some level, you are looking for attention and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think everyone has that feeling like everyone wants to be remembered. Everyone wants to feel like they've left their mark on the world and that our lives mattered. So, you know, I think that's something that people really do on social media they're trying to leave a record of their life somewhere that hopefully someone will have interest in but I think that's really the thing with diaries is that you know whether or not you're writing it hoping that someone will find it one day I mean that's the history that I loved and we've I know you and I have talked about this quite a lot as well how our interest in history is quite varied and that you've typically been more interested in like big historical events and like military history, political history, that kind of thing. Whereas I'm very much more into social history and like the history of normal people. Now the Tudors is a slight exception because Henry VIII is, is my bae, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, generally speaking, I love the history of normal people because that's just what I find to be fascinating. You know, how are people similar or different to how we are now four or five hundred years ago and I think it it tells you a lot about kind of the nature of humanity when you look at things like social history so yeah I think I think keeping a diary is a really it's a really good thing to do for like your mental health and all other kinds of reasons like I've kept a diary on and off since I was probably about six so you know it's I have a lot of words written down all over the place which I'm a little worried now that people are gonna somehow sell on the internet one day when I'm dead but it's yeah it's really interesting and i'm i'm definitely going to start looking into some of these things because i didn't even know this is a thing that you could do <laughs> so yes yeah, so that's my non-bookish read for the month i'll link that in the show notes if you are interested in reading that for yourself and kind of looking at some of those youtube channels and websites of the people that are the diary collectors um because i'm definitely going to be doing that so what about you what was your non-bookish read this month the non-bookish read I selected, uh, coincidentally enough, is also an article from The Guardian. Uh, it was from earlier there this year. There are other newspapers uh, out there, FYI. <laughs> late July. This particular one is called America's Untouchables, The Silent Power of the Caste System. And it's written by Isabel Wilk Wilkerson, who also wrote a book this year uh, called... Uh, it's called Caste, The Lies That Divide Us. And this uh this particular article is sharing some similar outlooks from her uh that she shares in the book which i have not yet read but it is definitely at the top of my to read list and um the article begins with her sharing a story from uh from 1959 where martin luther king jr and his wife uh fly to india to visit uh visit the land of gandhi and it tells a story where a, a high school principal uh, introduces King to a group of students whose families had been untouchables, which is the, the lowest social caste in India, so-called 
uh, because they are literally socially untouchable. And he introduces King uh, as a fellow untouchable from America. Interesting. And the the article really expresses that that King was uh, was shocked by this. He was you know initially put off and offended and really couldn't see how you know, why these people would view him, you know, a distinguished visitor as someone who was low caste. Um, and as he, as he began to think about what he was fighting for in America, uh, a quote that she shares of, uh, of people still smothering in an airtight cage of poverty, uh, exiles in their own country. He, he said to himself, you know, yes, I, I really am an untouchable. Hmm. And he uh, realized at that point that America, what we call the land of the free had imposed a caste system, not unlike the caste system of India, um, reading from the article, and that King had lived under that system all his life, and that that was what lay under the forces that he was fighting in the U.S. And it was it was really interesting for me to read this article. You know, we we think about you know America being the the land of opportunities, as we you know we hear in history class, where immigrants from all over the world could come to to start life over again and and have the same chance as everybody else. And historically, as much as that as that myth has comforted us, it's been it's been not entirely true. And this this article was very eye opening for me, and it's made me want to read this book even more. That sounds really interesting. I'm definitely going to read that. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at at what we read pod, and you can send us your book recommendations or any topics you'd like us to cover to what we read pod at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever podcast app you're using. We'll see you next month for a new episode.